Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. The last couple of weeks have been jam-packed with news about the other surge in COVID cases and, of course, the presidential election, which seems never to have an actual end. And it has been such a crazy whirlwind, and we have been trying to keep pace here on Detroit Today. So we decided today we might try to slow things down a bit and spend the hour talking with someone who undoubtedly has thoughts on both the pandemic and the election, but also has a really interesting new collection of essays out. Gerald Walker's new book is called How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, and it is full of poignant, personal, and authentic depictions of coming of age and living as an African-American man here in our country. The book is a finalist for the National Book Award, and I want to welcome Gerald Walker to Detroit Today. It's really great to have you here with us. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for the invitation. So there is a lot to get to that I want to talk about in this book. Uh, But let's start at the very beginning. You dedicate this book to your mentor, James Allen McPherson, who was your teacher at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Talk about some of the big lessons you learned from him and what prompted you to dedicate this book to him. Well, I'll answer that um, at the at the end. I dedicated it to him because without him, there would not be this book or the two prior ones I wrote. Um, or maybe it, if I wanted to be slightly more generous to myself, there would be other books, but they would be bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> James McPherson uh, made me rethink my entire approach to writing about black life. And it came about because I, I was accepted to the Iowa Writers Workshop and I am... Um, took a workshop with James McPherson. And for the first three weeks of the course, he was he's a pretty quiet, um, mild-mannered guy. And he simply let the students do all the talking, except for when it came time to discuss my first piece. I had submitted a story that was just based on my experiences growing up on the south side of Chicago. And McPherson prefaced the workshop by saying, a lot of gangster rappers are out there um, using these stereotypes, which are false, um, because they're trying to entice white writers to uh, like their work. But these gangster rappers are living lifestyles that are completely different from what they depict in their in their lyrics. And he accused me of doing the same thing. And I, I uh, got pretty upset about it. I went to see him the next day. And I explained that I am not trading in stereotypes. This is, this is my life. And uh, I went through the characters one by one and I explained uh, that they were true. And I demanded an apology from him. Wow. And he then blew his top because he was a pretty well-respected uh, writer. He was the first black writer to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Mm-hmm. So he stormed out of the office and he came back after he calmed down a bit. And I told him, look, I, you know, I'm doing my best as a writer. Maybe I mishandled the material. And he gave me this advice, which um, made me rethink my entire approach to writing. He told me stereotypes are valuable, but only if you use them to your advantage, that you use them to entice readers into what appears to be familiar territory. But once they're in that territory, you have to move them beyond the stereotype and show them what's real. And I asked him what's real. And he said, you, 
Mm. I didn't understand it. I had to think about it for a while. But what he was saying is I, the stereotypes that I had adopted as the core of my writing philosophy was that blacks are, are victims of white oppression, solely victims, not uh, in part, but only victims, and that we uh, cannot overcome the obstacles that we face. And um, he wanted me to recognize that people like myself and through the history of African-Americans in this country, we have never been solely victims of anything. We've always been a people who have struggled and fought and resisted and figured out survival strategies to do well in this country. And I was an example of it. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's an incredible exchange to have with someone, someone of that caliber. I mean, somebody whose work and whose life is, is such a model for not just African-American aspiring writers, but, but anybody who would, who would think uh, about, about being a writer. Uh, were you intimidated at all with, with this interaction with somebody who, who was, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, so famous and, and so influential? Well, you, you're kind of used the word incredible. Um, it was it was more accurately probably foolish. <laughs> I, I had no business speaking to him in that manner. Uh, in, in my defense, though, I was so shaken by his critique of me. If I had simply had a workshop and he pointed out the flaws in my prose, that would have been one thing. But for him to accuse me of doing what I believe to be probably one of the greatest sins a, a writer could do, which is to trade in stereotypes and to make things up and to present a self that is inauthentic to who the writer truly is, I simply couldn't accept that. And so, um, and also in my defense, I didn't sleep that night because I was so upset. Mm -hmm. So I went into his office pretty wired and a little bit out of control and to his generosity and another reason why he deserves this dedication and probably a hundred others from, from former students, he could have thrown me out of his office. Who does this guy think he is? This you know, 20 something year old guy who's never done anything uh, comes into my office and demands an apology. Uh, he, he would have been completely within his rights to say, leave my office and never speak to me again. And that would have been that. But instead, he decided to take me under his wing and to see if he could teach me. Mm -hmm. And he worked with me one on one for three years and served ultimately as my dissertation uh, supervisor when I completed a Ph.D. So he, he was a remarkable person. And I dedicate this book uh, to him and also my my worldview. Mm. So the title of the book, How to Make a Slave, which is also the title of the very first essay in the book, is a reference to a famous quote by Frederick Douglass. Uh, can you tell listeners about it for those who, who might not be familiar with that quote or what, uh, what Douglass was getting at when he said it? Um, the essay starts with me uh, doing a project. I'm 10 years old. And I'm doing a project for my um, elementary class in which we have to present on a famous figure in African-American history. And I have Frederick Douglass as my um, my character. And I I, uh, I tell the class that uh, he's my hero and he's a fantastic person. But that's not true, because at, at age 10, I'm really starting to learn the history of African-Americans in the United States. And it's pretty bleak. And to find yourself a part of this tradition of, of oppression and um murder and and uh, just you know outright um bad treatment uh, i was feeling kind of kind of down on douglas and all things african-american but there's one scene in his autobiography where douglas is pretty much fed up with his treatment of his slave master 
And he says, right before nearly beating the man to death, you have seen how a man was made a slave. Now you shall see how a slave was made a man. And uh, it's a remarkable sentence because it, it later in my life, I see that that sentence can also mean in a more broader context that you, if you are a slave to race in this country, um, then you cannot be uh, a man in the, a broad sense of the term, that you, you will never be a master of yourself if you allow the subject of race to dominate your every thought, your every move, and to create the kinds of paranoia that makes it impossible for you to see your fellow citizens as, in fact, fellow citizens. Hmm. Uh, that, that idea of duality that I think is behind what Douglas is talking about there and what you're writing about in, in this collection of essays is, to me, just such an integral part of being African-American in, in this country, the idea of, uh, of what was done to us for, for centuries and continues in, in many ways uh, to happen in, in different iterations versus what we have decided to do f- for ourselves and to make of ourselves is, is this kind of central tension of the narrative of, of being black in this country. That's true. And I think it would do um, everyone well on both sides of the racial equation um, to not focus solely on what was done to African-Americans, but as you said, what African-Americans did in response to what was being done. That what we're talking about here is um, a group of people who have managed to endure the brutalization of slavery and its aftermath. And if you can endure that and make it through it, then you by necessity are more than the sum of that brutalization. And so African-Americans have uh, for centuries shown resilience and toughness and the ability to improvise in negative situations to try to find a way to not only survive them, but often to excel. So you grew up on the south side of Chicago and parts of your childhood were pretty rough. And that seems to, of course, have had a pretty profound impact on your outlook and on your work. Tell us a little bit about what your days were like as a child and and how that has shaped your your worldview as an adult. Um, sure. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, a tale of two different lives. When I was six years old, I think my parents moved to a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago that was a white middle class neighborhood. We were the second black family in the community. And that for many people living there uh, was two black families too many. And so uh, they started moving out at a pretty rapid clip. So that by the time I was 14 years old, the neighborhood had gone from 99.9% white to 100% black. And if the whites who fled um, simply fled, that might've been you know, okay, an okay outcome. Okay, so now we have a black middle-class neighborhood. But the, the problem is the whites who fled often were the business owners in the community. And so a lot of the businesses left, the economic base of the community collapsed. And so the neighborhood went from being um, a, you know, a middle class, the kind of neighborhood that people aspire to move to, to being a complete ghetto uh, full of all the things that are um, common in these kinds of communities, drugs, gangs, alcohol, all of that stuff. 
And so I was 14 coming of age, right when these, this environment changed and I found myself sort of swept up into it. And uh, the effect of that as you grow older, as you become an adult, what did it do to you? Well, um, one of the things um, it did when I went through a pretty dark period from the age I started getting involved in you know, petty crimes and drugs and alcohol, um, mostly at the urging of one of my older brothers. And um, by the time I was 16, I dropped out of uh, high school and I was uh, just a complete wreck until my early 20s when I had a friend of mine. Um, I was 20 years old and I was uh, pretty addicted to cocaine at that point. Mm. Or, or I'll say uh, I liked it a whole lot. <laughs> I don't want to compare myself to people who uh, have, have a much more difficult time than I had with it. I simply wanted it at every opportunity. Uh, but I wasn't some guy, you know, in the alley shaking, you know, on his hands and knees. But I, but I wanted it. And so I was 20 years old and I went to um, a friend of mine who was a, a drug dealer contacted me to say that he uh, was selling um, coke and if I wanted some on credit, I could go and get it. And so I said, sure, I'll be there in 15 minutes. I went to his place of business, went into an alley to get to his third floor apartment. And some guy stepped out of the shadows and put a gun to my head and said, you know, give me your money. And I said, I don't have any money. I'm here to get drugs on credit. And he searched my pockets, found that it was true, and told me to go upstairs and get my drugs. And I did. I saw my friend. I told him what happened. We laughed about it because these things were kind of common. And I went back downstairs, and um, the guy wasn't there waiting for me, which was great. And I went and I got high. And 30 minutes later, my um, brother contacted me to say that my friend, from whom I bought the drugs, had been murdered at the very spot where I had been robbed, mm. making it pretty likely that the guy who put the gun to my head actually put it to my friends and pulled the trigger six times. And so uh, that was the moment for me to take stock of my life. I, I threw the drugs away that I had not consumed and I never got high again. Um, so, and I ultimately got out of that uh, environment. But to answer your question, that environment doesn't leave you. It stays with you. And I chronicled that in my first book, Street Shadows. And the title alludes to the fact that those streets are the shadows that still plague me. And I, despite the fact that I have by what uh, any standard would be considered a successful um, career as a, as a writer and as a professor, I still can't get beyond, maybe it's simply called survivor's guilt, but I always still feel that what happened to my friend uh, in that dark alley is something that I still have not yet escaped. And so it lingers, the whole effect of that environment still lingers with me. And I almost expect at any moment for someone to come from some shadow and say, your time is up. Wow, wow. And and as a writer, of course, I mean, you know, I always say there's this this kind of double-edged sword to, to, to that life, which is sort of defined by the pain and the struggle that, most writers and most people who who spend their life trying to make words into you know ideas and power um, that that you have this this thing that this awful part of you that you lived through that you survived and that you now leverage in order to tell the stories that you want in order to make the arguments that you want but but uh, no matter how successful you are, 
as a writer, I, I, I think the pain of what you experience, the, the fear of what you experience never leaves you. And I, I, I hear, I guess I hear that in, in your recounting of, of what that was like for you. It's true. And I, I tell my students this often um, because I teach memoir, I teach personal essay, and a lot of my students uh, gravitate to some pretty awful experiences. I mean, this is their material and this is what they um, want to document. And I sometimes wonder uh, what people do with all of this negativity from their lives and often from their, their youth. What do they do with it if they're not an artist? And what do they do with it if they're not a writer? Because we have the opportunity to try to make sense of it and to try to understand it and maybe even to try to heal from it as we practice our craft. I mean, there's an old saying that art is the child of pain. And so we at least have the benefit of creating art out of it. And when my students have these awful, awful experiences, um, they can at least take some solace in the fact uh, that they they can heal from it through the process of creation. And so I, I, I take those experiences from my youth and I have tried to uh, convert it to something that's useful, not only to uh, myself, but to readers and even people who may have had similar experiences. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation with Gerald Walker, writing literature and publishing professor at Emerson College and author of this amazing new collection of personal essays called How to Make a Slave and other essays. We'd love to hear from you as well, listeners. Uh, do you have a question for Gerald Walker or a story or observation about your own life and how some painful episodes, history, became power for you, became agency for you in adulthood? Uh, also give us a call and let us know what, you th- what you're thinking about these days. Uh, so much in the news with covid in the presidential election. We're going to talk with Gerald about that as well. How are you feeling about how things are going right now? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Gerald Walker, writing, literature, and publishing professor at Emerson College and the author of a new collection of personal essays titled How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, which is a finalist for a National Book Award. We're talking about his essays, about his life uh, that frame the work that he's doing, and we want to hear from you. Uh, What do you think about uh, the uh, the experiences that you've had in your life and how you leverage those in your adulthood uh, to either survive or thrive or share that pain with the rest of the world through some form of art, whether it's writing or music or other creative endeavors. We want to hear from you uh, this hour, 313-577-1019, of course, is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to take a quick call here from Karen in Detroit, who's got a really great question for Gerald. Karen, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, Stephen, and you've got a wonderful guest and I've been listening. Um, 
very intently, and the author made reference um, to a writer, I think was it Frederick Douglass, and is there anything that people approaching his essays should really read about, think about, in preparation as a background for um, reading his book? Hmm. Uh, great question, Karen. Uh, Gerald, what, what other influences or foundations uh, would, would, would help people relate to or understand the work that's in this book? Um, boy, I, I, I want to list off people like uh, Shakespeare and uh, uh, some pretty big names, but to be honest, you can simply pick up the book and start reading. Uh, they're, they're personal stories. So if you like stories, if you like short stories, if you like stories uh, that are about um, people who you may not come in contact with on a regular basis, but also people who may very well be your neighbors, uh, the book is for you, but there's no preparation needed. It's not the kind of an academic uh, book that requires uh, some prior uh, study. It's simply uh, an average guy who's talking about his experiences and how he has come to understand how to be a good parent, how to be a good colleague, uh, how to grapple with issues of race, and simply how to make his way in the world and make some some sense out of the chaos. Mm. So one of the essays in your book is dedicated to former President Obama's inauguration and how it inspired a conversation with your two sons about race. Uh, talk about that moment and how you were trying to contextualize it for sure. your boys. Um, Absolutely. One of the things that I, I think is interesting uh, lately, especially with the uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, a lot of white people were sort of rushing out trying to figure out what they can read and study so that they can have some pretty hard conversations with their family and their kids about race. Um, but the thing that maybe a lot of people don't quite understand is that blacks aren't born knowing how to have these conversations. Either. <laughs> right. we, don't, we don't know what to do with con the concept of uh, uh, racial oppression in this country when we have kids. And so it's always been uh, a difficult thing for me to try to figure out what to uh, say to my children. And I go back to me being a 10 year old learning about slavery and Frederick Douglass and all of these things and the weight it kind of put on me. And if you're a parent of, uh, of black kids uh, and you know that from the moment they're born, uh, they are raceless. They're simply adorable little beings and they're happy and they're silly, but you also know that at some point that's gonna change. They're gonna start being African-Americans and you have to decide as a parent uh, how to prepare them for it and how to have that not be a negative. That there are some obstacles and some challenges, but being black is not a sentence for being miserable or oppressed. But I, but I also know that it is gonna be a moment of awakening for a child, much the way that you might tell a kid, guess what, sorry, there's no Santa Claus. You want to delay that for as long as possible and let their innocence um, sort of flourish. Hmm. And so when uh, Obama was elected, I knew that my kids who were six and eight at the time were going to have discussions at school about what this election meant. And race was going to become a, a matter of primary significance in their lives. And I wanted to prep them for it, but I didn't know how to have that conversation. Yeah. I didn't want to do, to go back to my youth, what I saw a lot of adults do with their children, which was to tell them at a very early stage that being black means white oppression. I didn't want to give that to my kids and have them think of themselves as the object of, of oppression, but I, but I also wanted to, um, to let them know that those things are out there. So it's a matter, it's a loss of innocence for both my children 
uh, and for me that the um, election of Barack Obama brought about. So, so I remember that same moment, and and my children were much younger, maybe than yours were at that at that point, and and not really able to fully absorb the moment. But I I do remember thinking that for them because they were so young and as they would get older and come to think about the, the the very concept of president or or nation or race that their first reference to to the idea of a president would be an african american man and that it would it would fundamentally change their perception of themselves and this country in a way that isn't possible for people who are our age. In other words, that, that this is this moment that resets the baseline for understanding for an entire generation of these things. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you about this idea of, of that moment when there's the lost innocence that your kids have when they, when they can no longer just exist in the world and have to contend with the ideas of race and the history of race. But I also, I also felt really good about that. I felt really good about that moment uh, for them because it, it just is going to frame things so differently. And, and, and as they get older, uh, all of the experiences that they have will be influenced by that, that reset. I completely agree with that. It was a overwhelmingly uh, positive experience for my family. And my wife and I were extremely grateful that our children would be coming of age, racially speaking, with the black president. So we were we were thrilled about that. But to fully understand the significance of Barack Obama, you have to go back to Frederick Douglass and his um, peers who uh, were enslaved. So they were going to get the good and the bad, but I wanted to have the conversation um, about the bad so that they could fully appreciate the good. You can't appreciate Barack Obama until you, unless you talk about what came before him. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely positive. What, but when I finished the uh, discussion and I mentioned uh, slavery and how that made this moment in time so uh, phenomenal, uh, I told my children that to go from slavery to the presidency meant that African-Americans are remarkable people capable of achieving anything, that that was the lesson of the moment that I wanted them to take, and they did take it. And they, um, the, the, their, their lives and their behavior and their character completely reflect the, the positive outcome of Barack Obama's presidency. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones call and tell us uh, about things in your past that you use to leverage uh, into power and agency uh, in adulthood. Uh, Tell us how you talk to your children about race and racism. How you explain the history of this country and try to push them out into the world in a way that they have more control over things than people uh, did uh, who who preceded us. Uh, Also give us a call, tell us what you make of the incredible array of news that surrounds us right now, the new surge of COVID cases nationwide and, of course, here in Detroit. 
and in Michigan, uh, and of course the presidential election, which never seems to be reaching an actual end. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you in. Let's go to Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, so I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, two weeks sober, but I'm scared to even be on radio saying that right now. I mean, what if my boss is listening? What if my colleagues are? What if they judge me and use it against me? I mean, I look at Hunter Biden, um, and there's another guy named Ryan Knight who's uh, trying to found a new political party. And on Twitter, I see people discrediting him, saying he's a former coke addict, and you know, he's like, I'm recovered. Like, what does that have to do with anything? So, um, you know, I like to be open because it is so key for people understanding who I am and shows vulnerability. But how did you get to that point of being open, not being scared? Um, and being willing to explain how this has made you a better person. Thank you. Great well, question, great question, Dan. Yeah. Great, Thank great you. Great question, Dan. And congratulations on your sobriety. We're rooting for you. Um, it was not easy. I started out as a fiction writer. When I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, I was uh, writing fiction solely. And that was because I was ashamed of my past and my behavior and the things that I had done. And so I was writing stories that were 99% true but I would change a town, I would change a name, I would change a gender to try to disguise these things. And one day when I met the woman who would ultimately be my wife now of uh, just about 30 years, uh, she asked me, why, why, are you, why are you not writing nonfiction? Why aren't you telling these stories? Because I know that they're true. Why aren't you doing that? And I confessed to her that I was ashamed of my drug use. I was ashamed of my drinking. I was ashamed of my delinquency. I was ashamed of all of those things. And she helped me see that there's one thing to be ashamed of it when you're doing it, but if you have made it to the other side, that you are in a position to talk about what it means to have redemption, what it means to change your life so that people who have had similar experiences can see there is a way through this. And if I can make it through it, maybe someone else can. And you almost have an obligation as a writer and maybe even simply as a fellow citizen to help people who are still going through the struggles that you went through to say that there is another side of this. I'm a human being, I made mistakes, but I'm okay now and I'm struggling still, but I'm okay now. And I want you to see me as a whole person and not simply as someone who is not allowed to be imperfect. We all are. Mm. And I think it's okay to confess that and to say that and say, but I'm doing my best and let people see you as a whole person and not simply as someone who's either bad or good, but rather somebody who's a mix and is simply doing the best that they can as you are, Dan. Uh, does it ever sort of lash back at you? Does it ever come back in a negative way, the fact that uh, you are so open about about the things that you've experienced? Um, it, 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 it kind of, in a way. Um, but when I became an academic, and when most people who are academics come from a certain class of society, so that you're not going to find many academics who were born in a housing project and raised on the south side of Chicago and dropped out of school at 16. So you run across people who have had pretty um, cushy, privileged lives and who have attended, attended the best schools and uh, lived in the best society. And then they read your stories and there is a bit of snobbery, snobbery involved in that. And sometimes there's um, a little 
a resistance to having you be in this different uh, class of company. But you can't, you just can't be concerned with that. You just have to uh, recognize that you deserve to be in the place where you are. And I, I am here, this is my past. I'm no longer ashamed of it. In fact, I'm proud of these experiences because they've made me who I am. And also, as I mentioned to my kids often, those experiences have given me strength. They've given me um, character. They've given me uh, pride. These are all the qualities that have consistently been present with African-Americans for 400 years. Mm -hmm. Again, Dan, uh, really appreciate the call and and good luck with uh, with your continued recovery. Let's go to Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. How are okay, you? Okay, I don't have that problem with drinking. I've never drank, but okay, I've had the problem with people. Well, it's just me. I'm a very happy person, and my demeanor has always been extremely happy. And people that meet me, they cannot get over it. And somehow uh, they say, well, I'm phony, I'm this, that, and the other. <laughs> and then when they find out who I am, I'm ready to go now. Hmm. I don't want to hear it. And so it's like uh, when I moved here in Dearborn, which was like, uh, I think this was 30 years ago or something like that. But anyways, the whole thing is that I got out of a geo and I looked around. And I said, I'm going to live, I'm going to live here. So the house wasn't yet in the books, but I found the house where I wanted to live. And I live here now. You see, okay, you can decree on something, but you have to believe in what you want. You can't let anybody else tell you who you are, mm. or who they want you to be. You have to fight. Sometimes you have to fight to be who you are. And that's what I did all of my life, and I'm still doing it. Well, and, and that experience in Dearborn, Lola, I mean, you're an African-American woman. That's a, a city that when you moved there and even today really struggles with the, the very idea of 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 diversity and and integration uh i mean the the fact that you have done that for as long as you have is is one of the more remarkable things i think uh and you've called before and talked about some of that experience but but i hear what you're saying about you know uh, persevering and and deciding to be who you need to be, and I love that, as you say, uh, you're always happy and have a really important kind of sunny disposition. That's a that's a really great that's a really great dynamic. Um, Gerald, I want to talk with you a little about humor and light moments. Uh, you use that to real effect uh, in the book. Uh, talk about the the role of humor and levity. In growing up somewhere that's thought of as dangerous, and in in again leveraging that history uh, to to your own advantage as an adult, I, I have to say I will definitely do that. But first, I just want to commend Lola for calling. I, it made me uh, just so pleased to hear her describe herself as a happy person, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's not something you associate with African Americans. For some reason, you should because um, <laughs> we're. We're human, which means we too are happy. Um, but I, I wanted to do with this book, um, I wanted to make sure I, there was a blend of um, of uh, uh, happiness and uh, tragedy, of tragedy and comedy, because mm -hmm. lives uh, have both. And I and I one of the things in um, one of the essays I call Heritage Room 
It's about portraits of African-Americans who, who were hung in uh, a conference room at one of my prior um, institutions uh, of higher learning. And all of the pictures were of African-Americans who were scowling and had these frowns on their faces, people you would know, um, like Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and all of these icons of, of black um, culture. And they're all frowning. And that just seemed so opposite to what I know about my experience as an African-American. Sure, bad things happen. Sure, we have obstacles. Sure, we deal with racism. But that is such a small fraction of who we are as people. And when I think back on my childhood on the south side of Chicago, when I have the dark experiences that happened, those occur to me. But I, I picture myself laughing with my friends. And I picture myself going to the basketball court and playing games and teasing each other. And uh, I, I think that the African-American experience uh, is one that is just completely full of opportunities for humor and irony and laughter and fun. And Lola nails it. I'm glad to know that she's out there being who she wants to be and not allowing people to say to her, what right do you have to be happy? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that struggle to not just express humor or joy, but have control over it. Uh, the way the way that you get to express it, where you get to express it, is is again uh, a, a very old and consistent tension uh, inside African American life in this country. I mean, it's just not it's not something that most people think of when they think of the African American experience. They don't, but they will when they read this book because it's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There, there are some dark moments, but there, there are some pretty funny things in it. And I, I try to, I try to make sure that humor um, is a central role in, in most of these stories. So, um, because it helps, it helps, especially when talking about something as heavy as race, uh, it helps to have a little sweetener uh, to it to help it go down a little bit. Mm. Uh, I, I want to make sure I, I get you to talk a little about this moment in racial dialogue and debate and argument in in this country this has been an extraordinary year and the summer of uh, the BLM protests and and the movement that has now grown out of it i think really changed the balance of uh, of the discussion for almost everybody uh, who, who's engaged with it um, are we are we in a different space now than we were before uh, George Floyd was was murdered by the police and and this movement uh, cropped up, are we closer to the kinds of equality that uh, that African Americans have been trying to achieve? You know, as you point out, for for nearly four hundred years on this continent. I think that there's been steady progress in racial equality in this country. And I think that the last few years have been kind of a setback, um, but the movement is always forward. And you, even after a couple of uh, steps back, you, you'll take one or two back, but then you'll go forward five or six. And I'm, I'm anticipating that we're due for five or six steps forward right now. Uh, but I think there's always been steady progress. And I think uh, that we will reach a point where race in this country is no longer the abiding concern of the citizens. And I, and I, I have to believe that. I believe that uh, racial equality is possible. 
and I believe that a post-racial society is possible. Now, uh, that may sound absolutely absurd to a lot of people, but I think, I think I owe it to my children and to my children's children to believe in that kind of a future, uh, much like my slave ancestors owed it to me to believe that they would one day be free. Hmm. And many of them never saw freedom, but I can assure you that almost all of them believed in it. And without that belief, there cannot be any forward momentum or psychic forward momentum. And I don't know how you can, um, I don't know how you can sustain your, your sanity if you don't think that there's a better future, no matter how dark things get at times. And, and, and times have been pretty dark lately, but you have, you have to think that better times are on the horizon because future generations depend on you having those thoughts. And, and so often I think that idea that there is progress that, that should be noted and that, and that you believe in, in a better future is, is dismissed as, as Pollyannish or naive and, and that uh, somehow it's not, it's not worth lifting up in, in the discussions about the problems that we have. But, it, but, you know, the, the danger of eliminating that kind of hope, I think, is, is so powerful and so threatening to the African-American experience. I, I agree. I, I think um, to believe that we are not making progress and that things will not get better is almost an act of um, group suicide. I mean, you you, kinda, you, ha you have to believe that. Imagine someone telling some enslaved person, perhaps one of the first slaves to arrive in his country, that when they started singing at night, we shall overcome. Someone coming into the room and saying, what are you talking about? This is it for us. What, what, there's, I would not be here if my ancestors adopted that kind of an attitude. Despite all of what they went through, they must have continued to hope and believe in a better future, or there simply would not have been a will for them to survive. The fact that we survived meant that there was a will to do so and a belief in a better future. And that is absolutely necessary for us now in order to have that future be a possibility. We have to believe in it mm. if it's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we will continue this conversation with Gerald Walker. We'll also get to more of your calls. Tim in Detroit, Joanna in Detroit, Gloria in Detroit. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Gerald Walker, writing literature and publishing professor at Emerson College and author of a new collection of personal essays titled How to Make a Slave and other essays. We're talking about that work. We're talking about his history and how he's leveraged that into his work. We want to hear from you as well uh, about ways in which you have taken perhaps painful chapters 
of your past and made something productive or positive about them uh, in adulthood. As always, the number on the phone is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Gloria in Detroit. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Hi. Well, I just want to applaud um, Lola for calling in and giving her everyday uh, testimonial about her herself and her life, mm-hmm. and uh, also to Mr. Walker about his book, um, exploring those issues, and say that um, Dave Chappelle, in his monologue last Saturday mm-hmm. on uh, SNL, is a direct example of talking about our pain, our experience, bravely, and but also um, displaying the joy and the forgiveness and the resilience of the African American in this country. And I thought it was just absolutely a piece of work mm. that everybody should see. And if you didn't see it, YouTube it, because <laughs> his monologue was a absolute masterpiece on um, displaying or talking about our experience, but who we are. We are um, not angry, we're forgiving, loving, joyful, humorous, and ready to move forward in this country. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree, Gloria. I thought thought it was a a wonderful... Uh, monologue really complex and and nuanced at, in the way that it looked at kind of where we are and and where we've been and it was interesting to compare it to the monologue he gave on Saturday Night Live uh, four years ago after the presidential election when Donald Trump was uh, was the winner and and he had the same approach but of course different facts uh, to look like to look at uh, Gerald Walker there again. This this role of humor and the mix with uh, with acknowledgement of difficulty and pain. I mean, this is this is signature African American culture in this country. I'm so grateful um, to Gloria's point about Dave Chappelle. I saw that monologue. Dave Chappelle is a genius. I I loved it, and um, he said a line in it. In fact, it stayed with me. Um, he said he can't tell the truth about black life without a punchline at the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was, it's necessary to have, again, that mixture of tragedy and humor so that people will be willing to listen. Uh, and it's and, and he's a perfect example of someone. He could have gone on stage and just ranted and raved and cursed and screamed. Uh, but he, he found a way to find joy in having these difficult discussions and to find humor in it. And I just think the humor is absolutely vital in these conversations. Everybody gets uptight when it's time to talk about race. And people go into their corners and they they wrap themselves too tightly in their own point of view on these things. And I think that humor is, it may in fact be the only venue to have these really difficult discussions so that we can relax a little bit. We can hear what the other person is saying. We can be open, we can be forgiving. We can also be honest and maybe even critical and necessary. But ultimately at the end of it all, we have to simply embrace each other's um, humanity, and if we can laugh about it in the process, all the better. Mm. 
Again, Gloria, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Adrian in Detroit. Adrian. Oh, okay. You know, guys, I love your conversation. And, but I just want to share this. After standing outside and taking a deep breath this morning, I said we take the air we breathe for granted. How many times you take a deep breath and now you wonder, okay, I need a mask. You know, so I just want to make that comment. I don't know where it fits in, but I wanted to share that I'm like, we got sunshine and I can take <laughs> a deep breath, hoping that that air is fresh enough so I won't catch anything. Oh, Adrian, that's such a that's such a wonderful sentiment. I'm so glad you called uh, and shared that. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, I've got about a minute left, but I uh, wanted to get you in here. Hi, just briefly, I, I think we have a lot to uh, celebrate. Uh, we saved uh, this last election. Black folks saved America from itself, <laughs> uh, just like we saved America and the Union during the Civil War. So we have a lot to celebrate. Tim, I really, really appreciate that sentiment. You're not you're not wrong by uh, a very, a very long shot. Um, okay, uh, Gerald Walker. I always ask this of writers when they come on the show. Uh, what are you working on? What's next? I am an essayist, true and true. Um, so I've already started a new essay collection. I don't know what I'll call it yet, but it will be a follow-up uh, to this one. Well, well, we will look forward to uh, to reading that. It was really great to have you here for this uh, for this conversation. What a wonderful way to end uh, a pretty difficult week in the news. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Okay, I want to make sure we thank associate producer Claire Brennan with her help in producing today's really great show on Detroit Today. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when we're going to talk with a group here in Michigan that's pushing for progressive policies to help mothers, including earned paid sick time, affordable child care, and women's health. We'll talk about their hopes and their concerns under a Biden administration. And we're going to preview Michigan lawmakers' upcoming lame duck session as the coronavirus just continues to surge here in our state and around the nation. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.